Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. My guest today is probably one of the hardest working men in fashion, so hardworking that many suspect that he might have a twin brother. He's everywhere in upcycling, recycling, new stuff, and even worms. My guest today is Christopher Rayburn. Welcome, Chris. Oh, well, thank you so much for, for having me. It's a, yeah, good good fun, hopefully, and a, and a real honour to be here. I'm honoured to have you as a guest. Now, you've been in the fashion business in various forms and maybe sort of in businesses that don't even appear to be very fashionable for a while now, about 15 years or so? Yeah, so, I mean, it's it's now, uh, yeah, you're right, 15 years since I graduated from, from the Royal College of Arts here in, in, in London. And from there, I was starting to work um, pattern cutting, doing design work for, for other companies before starting my own, my own studio. And uh, that was actually sort of 2008 2009 that then I made my first kind of collection if you will and I took one parachute uh, and and deconstructed it reworked it into about eight garments I sewed myself and then uh, over the last now 12 years we've, we've been very fortunate to to grow uh, our own company Rayburn but then also work with with many others as well. Now you mentioned parachutes and that wasn't the first time you took something of previous military purpose and repurposed it. I think you did something at school that was interesting in that respect as well. Yeah, well, it's it's a funny old thing now to think back on this. So it was 2001, so obviously scarily now 20 years ago when I was studying, in fact, before the Royal College of Arts. I was at, at Middlesex University up in, in North London, and I was just sort of very... Uh, interested really in, in materials and, and the functionality of clothing and it led me to then going to research uh, where I could potentially source materials and, and while I was studying and everything was very very expensive if you wanted to buy a original uh, or very high quality wool or a waterproof material on a roll it was yeah, as I say either very expensive or indeed very hard to get hold of but what fascinated me was that I at the time was was kind of starting to collect a few different garments and things and was going to a lot of different markets. And I started to realize that actually kind of part of the answer there as a, uh, I guess, an, a, a sort of entrepreneurial student, part of the answer was right in front of me because there were thousands of garments that already existed and many pieces that, that hadn't actually been worn. And I was going to markets, um, particularly things like... Um, over in, in, in East London here and, and over into the West and finding original uh, jackets that had never been worn and uh, sort of uh, looking at these amazing things still invariably wrapped in hessian waxproof paper. And uh, I, I, it, it sort of um, one thing led to another, led to me looking at these things, deconstructing these original things, loving the quality, the stories they already had, the labels on the inside, and then remaking them into, into new things. And that sort of started when I was at university. It didn't go very well when I was at university during my degree. My, my tutors didn't really get it and my grades were pretty terrible. But then very fortunately, when I started at, at the Royal College, they, they really encouraged me and, and told me that actually there was something in this. And um, it, it, I, I guess it gave me the confidence to to uh, sort of continue that and, and also 
it's a when you're in your your early early twenties, it's a it's a kind of key moment to I guess get some encouragement. You're not mad or not completely mad, but then also um, yeah, that maybe you're doing something different and there's some merit in it. Well, clearly, when you're in the beginning of your 20s, you are master of the universe and know better than anyone else. So I imagine when you were deconstructing battle blouses and making a field jacket out of them, you were well ahead of your time. It was just everyone else that hadn't sort of caught up with you yet. Well, just, I mean, on that, Nick, I've been really open that I, I sort of wasn't at all. And, and none of what I've done is new. It just makes common, you know, perfect sense, common sense, if you will. And I was brought up really with um, with parents that were very much of the, the make do and mend um, mindset. It, it was just the way that we that we were sort of brought up. So I've been quite open that actually none of this is kind of new. It's just a logical way of looking at things. Why why make something from new if you can make something from old and and reduce your impact, or if you can keep something in circulation or or in use for longer? Then I think there's a real merit to that. Okay, I accept it's not new, maybe, but you are certainly more dedicated than most, whereas some will save a few items, deconstruct and make something, but you have actually made a business around it. Yeah, yeah, we've definitely been fairly tenacious, and um, I, I suppose that the thing that I, I've always been very grateful for is that it's just something I'm really passionate about. We're here in, in the Rayburn Lab in, in East London at the moment doing, doing the call. And we've got our archive here, and I've always collected um, garments, as I, as I mentioned. So then it, it sort of was quite a natural progression, if you will, to then start deconstructing and, and reworking those things. So I've kind of been grateful that my interest has become my business. And then along the way, the entire narrative around um, what, what, what people... Uh, called sustainability, we call responsible design. Everything's kind of changed in the last 10, 12, now 15-year period. So it's been quite exciting. And and with that, we've realized that our obligation within that whole conversation is to push harder, to, to um, sort of ask more questions, if you will, of ourselves, but then of others, and and really to move the whole dynamic forward in, in this area of, of, um, of the industry. So you are still going out digging for that elusive surplus that will inspire you to create more is this something you do on yourself still or do you send minions yeah. out <laughs> um very much so and, and if you put covid to one side for a minute it it's really it's what i'd want to be doing all the time to be honest it, it's something that i really uh, i really enjoy that that element i mentioned earlier kind of archaeology it's a very hard thing to brief anyway to um to another team member here at rayburn because you don't always know what you're looking for you know the very nature of, of what we do within uh within the business is going out to find these items that it's the sort of one man's rubbish is another man's gold um sort of um philosophy on this where the 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 reality of so much of what we work with and i've mentioned parachutes but over the years it's been everything from hot air balloons to life rafts to Siberian sheepskin coats to guardsmen's uniforms. To, you know, all of these incredible things. Often, you can't just search for them online. You you have to get out there and, and find these things in amazing warehouses because, you know, they're, they're rare. And the, and the really good stuff is really, really rare. 
so the best way is to, to get in there and, 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 and find it. Um, and I have to say, actually, one of the one of the things I've missed in the last um, year or so, where, where we've been so limited with travel, is that I haven't had so much of an opportunity to to get out there. You know, I used to be traveling a lot to the US, to Asia, and and finding items. Sometimes a single item that would then uh, almost lead to a whole new uh, kind of research program, or then at other points, hundreds or thousands of pieces. In a, in a surplus store in the US that then, you know, potentially it's how we can get these back and, and deconstruct them here in the UK. Because if there is one thing that is true, it is that the military, when they make stuff, they make a lot of it. And a lot of it is not used or barely used. So there must be lots and lots everywhere. Yeah, you are talking billions and billions of garments that are in the world right now that have never been worn. And not just military, of course, you know, any large organisations, they, they often end up making clothing for, for staff, for, for um, the team, etc. So, yeah, as I mentioned, it's almost this thing of, of going out and, and, and looking for those kind of waste streams, if you will, and then how that can be repurposed. So... Being that you're sort of an Indiana Jones of uh, <laughs> material that can be repurposed, what, what are your favourite types of stuff to reuse? What has well, been me, the best? Yeah, for, for me, when I think back on on some of my highlights from, from the last sort of 10, 12 years, we mentioned the wool pieces to begin with. They were original 1950s battle dress jackets, completely... Um, unique and uh, with beautiful labeling this almost kind of uh, amazing story within a story but through through the the years I, i've been quite interested actually that even when i think back on when i first started collecting pieces a lot of the the, the garments i was i was sort of collecting at the time were all natural materials of so wool and cotton and you know rubberized cottons and to bring the functionality and and then it was this was sort of through the through the 80s early 90s then all of a sudden you had a lot more um synthetics gore-texes waterproofs all, all of these things come through as well so it's been quite interesting when i then think about the remake practice and what we've actually worked with over the years sometimes we're looking for kind of natural things that have that amazing story and and the labeling etc inside but then sometimes it's more performance so We've worked um, in the last season with these beautiful anti-gravity trousers uh, originally made for the Royal Air Force for tornado jet pilots. And uh, they've stopped using the, the, that type. So then all of a sudden you've got all of these incredibly really well-made trousers that were made, of course, with, with pure function in mind. So much detail to them, but they're, they're redundant. And so it then helps to... Um, to sort of generate uh, the, the aesthetic of the, of the final pieces that we're making. Um, yeah, so there's a, a kind of few highlights there and slightly uh, rambling. I can <laughs> just imagine sort of wandering down the street uh, in my anti-gravity pants. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, um, and, and why not? <laughs> um, one thing that does make me wonder, when you're finding all this stuff in these warehouses and you're either cutting it up or you're repurposing it um, in other ways, how do you get rid of that warehouse vintage smell? Mm. Yeah, it's a great question. So the um, anything you know much older, we're we're washing, cleaning, etc. Through industrial uh, cleaning, but actually the truth is, ninety-five percent of what we work with has never been used before, 
And so a lot of the, the newer items, things like the, the trails I just mentioned, we're actually getting those things vacuum sealed. They've never even been opened. And so it's it's quite incredible. We did one project where we worked with um, with Eastpac, who do um, backpacks and, and holdalls and things. And we worked with about 3,000 different um, uh, waterproof um, seam sealed jackets, British military. And it was a really interesting example where the, the jackets we were working with, uh, here in the, in the UK, we used to have a woodland camouflage and we used to have a desert camouflage for, for the military. And then the powers that be said, oh, you don't need to, we'll, we'll merge them and we'll make a multi-cam. So then all of a sudden you had hundreds of thousands and potentially millions of, of the woodland and the desert. So we were actually able to access these, these um, incredibly high quality jackets, deconstruct them, make them into bags. But when we ordered them, and, and it was um, pretty much from the Ministry of Defence, so we were working with a clearance company that, that work with the, the um, MOD here in, in the UK, they all came sealed, had never been opened. So, so much of what we do actually is trying to go out and find really good high quality items that actually have never been used. And so then often, as I mentioned, they're, they're completely sealed. And you don't even have that problem that you've outlined from, from the warehouses. It's almost scary that there's so much stuff out there that it's just made and not used. It is. I mean, as you touched on earlier, the inherent thing with the military, they have to overproduce and they have to have contingency for every you know scenario and all of those things. And, and if you kind of flip it round, I suppose our philosophy on this is that actually it, it's kind of good, if you will, that it hasn't been used. And our job is to take something that was inherently designed with, with pure function and, and um, you know, let's face it, fairly negative connotations in mind and take that and actually make it into something beautiful, contemporary, wearable and, and useful, you know, uh, again. So we really flip it around and, and like to think that the work that we're doing here really has a, a, a lot of positivity to it. Speaking of positivity, I did notice uh, something quite wonderful when the whole COVID situa situation started and um, you were doing in the, your Rayburn Lab guys uh, sort of open source projects you could do at home for mm. making bucket hats and animals and stuff. And I just thought that, that was such a wonderful idea, just yeah. sharing. <laughs> it's funny, actually. I, um, I appreciate this is a podcast, but I'm going to hold up a shark. Uh, for you to see, Nick. Um, and yeah, you're right. We realized one, I mean, a big part of what we do within Rayburn, it's about bringing together craft, creativity, and community. And pre COVID, we were doing regular workshops where we were teaching people how to sew, you know, people coming into, into our space and, and teaching uh, kind of basic and then actually going up to fairly uh, advanced skills in, in how to put things together. And, and we do. The animal mascots, which you mentioned, um, as a sort of fairly regular workshop, and the, the proceeds goes to the Worldwide Fund for, for Nature. So it's all about charity and, and, and giving back as well. And we really missed it early on um, when lockdown hit, and we thought, well, how can we actually uh, really, you know, flip this around and, and, and um, kind of bring it into people's homes? So we then released the patterns. So we then released the patterns and made sure, um, yeah, essentially people could make these things uh, from home. But what was really good for us is that all of a sudden we had people making sharks and pandas and bucket hats, as you mentioned, but from really amazing fabrics that they just had in their own home and then posting them online. And it was this whole thing around co-creation. And we were seeing 
incredible creativity that, that we'd never considered before. So you kind of learn as well from, from your community. So yeah, it's pretty amazing. Mm, a real two-way thing going on there. Mm. So you've got your Rayburn Labs and you've got your Rayburn Studios. I mean, just, just to clarify, we, we they're one and the same and, and singular. So we have uh, the, the Rayburn Lab here in in London. We're in the old Burberry uh, textile building over in over in Hackney, and this whole area used to be the beating heart of, of, of clothing manufacturing within London. And so uh, we sort of chose this site because of that that history, and really wanted it to be somewhere where where we again could could get creative, where we could be doing. Um, yeah, a, a lot of our making and, and as I mentioned, the workshops and all those other things as well. But I realise I interrupted you, but only hopefully to, to sort of slightly clarify. And, yeah. and really just to say Rayburn's still quite small. Uh, so we yeah. don't have labs everywhere and we don't have uh, <laughs> this quite yet. Well, I'm glad you don't because you obviously have enough going on otherwise because you've also got the Rayburn division that makes sort of tech streetwear. Yeah, so we – well, it, it, it's all within um, – the same ethos in fact we we look at things really quite holistically to think okay the way that we work we call it the remade reduced or recycled and the remade garments everything's done right here in the studio it's what we talked about to begin with we're deconstructing reworking uh, original items then making them into to sort of relevant and contemporary clothing they're all individually numbered as well so it's really limited it's it's a real labor of love but then we do um, have uh, sort of other elements of the business where we where we have more scale. So the reduced, uh, it's a real focus on on waste reduction, local manufacturing where possible, and it encompasses our jersey and our knitwear, which is all done organically, um, got certified, you know, all really really done in the right way and, and very high quality. And then we have a fully recycled program, which is more of the, the uh, jackets and um, backpacks in, in particular. But you're right, those those, um, those elements with the reduced and recycled, it's a lot more uh, kind of streetwear, a bit more uh, contemporary. And actually what we've really seen in the last year with the, the sort of move to people working at home is, has been a big acceleration and people particularly buying into our jersey product, you know, really comfortable. And of course, um, wearing those items at home. So it's it's been quite a change for us as well. Right. So moving from there, <laughs> you are also the creative director of Timberland, which yes. is a massive company compared to your sort of own companies. What what, yeah. what does it involve being a creative director? Um, well, in simple terms, my my role within uh, Timberland. Is, is really twofold. It's to bring um, uh, a, a slightly more contemporary uh, design edge to, to the company. Of course, we're very proud of, um, of the yellow boots, which everyone knows from Timberland, that kind of classic yellow boot. But actually, as we drive the business forward, it's about bringing um, yeah, more, more innovation in, in, into the overall design aesthetic. And then really importantly, the reason that I'm in that role and um, I think it really makes very good sense. It's really to put responsible design at the heart of everything that Timberland's doing. And what's given me great pride, I've, I've been now the, the creative director since October of 2018. It was in autumn of last year, we announced our bold goals towards 2030. 
And you mentioned earlier, you know, Timberland's a, a, a big company, got about 2,000 stores around the world. And then it's also part of a, a bigger company, VF, that own the North Face and Vans. And, and um, it's been quite amazing because we've been able to work over the last just over two years to put together these bold goals. And towards 2030, we're now completely transparently working towards being a net positive um, impact on, on the planet through two um, really big um, innovations, one around circularity, which you'll hear a lot about within the industry at the moment, not just making things recycled, but making them recyclable. And that's really important, but massive for, for Timberland because we use so many natural materials. So you think about all that leather that goes into the boots and the rubber and cotton in particular, we're, we're really um, investing a lot around regenerative agriculture in particular. So going back to the older and, and much more um, positive ways of, of farming in particular, you can actually then move to being um, in a position where, for example, with arable farming, it then draws more carbon from the atmosphere than, than it um, obviously puts in. And through these two systems working together, circularity and then regenerative, you can actually move a massive company to being positive on the planet. And the reason it's super exciting for me is I think, wow, okay, within Rayburn, we've always worked in quite a radical way. And it's amazing that a big company like, like Timberland uh, said, okay, well, you know, we kind of see this guy's working in a different way. Let's um, bring him in, see what he can influence. And then to be able to influence a, a big, big company like Timberland is amazing. And the reason that I mentioned then the North Face and Vans and other groups in the portfolio. Then all of a sudden, Timberland's pushing them. And then, of course, the whole group, VF, is kind of pushing the sportswear brands and everything moves forward together. And that's what really excites me is that although starting from a, a small space within Rayburn, you then really have this opportunity to, to impact in a, in a really positive way on a, on a completely global scale. It's uh, remarkable that one person can have such an effect you could have risked them just hiring you to be a sort of figurehead to uh, speak about stuff and basically greenwash the situation or mm. really just not do much but it sounds like you're really achieving major change well it, it uh, well yes but then really importantly this this isn't about me you know it's been really amazing we worked together uh, for about two years before i took on the role so I really had an opportunity to meet a lot of the team members. And our, our teams are split between the US, so east coast of the US, about an hour north of Boston, and then here in Europe. And it's amazing. When you go to the headquarters in a place called Stratum, just above Boston, I realized so quickly how passionate people were about the environment and about products and about doing the right thing. So it wasn't as though I had, a let's say, a, a challenge at all. It was more, you know, meeting people that I, I kind of joke, it's almost like they've got green blood anyway. And you kind of, it's easy to forget that with Timberland, which of course has one of the most recognizable label, uh, sort of logos in, in the world, you kind of forget it's a tree. So out of every brand, <laughs> you, you, of course, we, we need to work even harder anyway. And so it was great to actually be able to, to work really quickly with those teams that were already um, very passionate. And, and I guess a lot of what we've been doing actually is, connecting everything you know really refining it making it understandable and then as i mentioned kind of putting it in a, in a really transparent way for for um for the future really for our planning but it's been fun do you find it's 
actually possible to get a, a full overview of the whole sustainability, environmental, ethical, the whole the whole system, because it seems so immensely complex, and we tend to sort of focus on small parts of it, say um, workers' conditions in the Far East, or using uh, fossil fuel-based fabrics, or just tiny cogs in the machinery. Be machinery, but when you start sort of zooming out a bit, and you realise wow, there's just so much stuff interconnected here. How on earth are we going to make this whole system better? Yeah. Well, I, I, in, in honesty, of, of course, it is incredibly complex. And I think the reason I word, used the word sort of transparent earlier is I just think it's so important that you're open and honest about the areas that you are hopefully improving on and also you know areas where maybe you need to make further improvements and things like that and I the, the way that you've kind of highlighted a few um, a few areas I think is the right thing to do you need to break it into sections because if you if you look at everything together it's overwhelming and particularly potentially for anyone maybe looking to start their own business or to to shift uh, to be to be more responsible if you will and, and you look at um, maybe needing to, to make all of these big systematic changes, very overwhelming. But if you break it down into the, the components and you highlighted some of them, I think that that's absolutely the way that we can approach things. I also think, personally, I, I take a lot of confidence that there are so many initiatives and amazing companies now that are, again, connecting the dots and connecting companies and, and brands and, and working together. So, for example, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation does an amazing job working towards circularity. That's their entire remit. And then connecting brands and um, and sort of innovation pipelines and things and really trying to get everyone together. And I think we need a lot more of that. And I think part of what we've seen even in the last year with, with, um, with COVID and everything else there's a lot more happening. That's it's about collaboration, cross brand, cross industry, and, and we're going to need a lot more. I think. Do you think the transparency side of it helps people be a bit more honest about what they're doing? It it should do, <laughs> of, of course. Um, I I think um, you know sustainability. I, I still think it, it's quite an ambiguous thing. You know. It, it, and, can mean it's very, it's very very subjective it can mean a lot of different things to different different people um but i think yeah transparency is going to be very important in just setting uh realistic goals and and working towards them i think is is for me you know again i'm very pragmatic very straightforward i think that has to be the way that we work mm. i did think i knew what sustainability meant until i recently looked at on wikipedia and then i realized that hang on <laughs> It was yeah. page upon page, and it was just way outside what most people think of it. But I think that's a case of everything being thrown into it. Mm. But it's interesting where if you if you actually go to, to sort of the dictionary definition as well of sustainability, meaning to, to maintain at the same rate, right? And it's quite interesting, of course, then I would argue that we're already in a position as a planet and as a people where if we just maintain at the same rate, that isn't enough anymore because we've we've been in this degrading state on the environment for so long. We have to really shift things to be much more 
regenerative, much more positive, simply because of the amount of damage we've already done. So for me, like sustainability isn't is nowhere near enough. Anyway, you know, within Rayburn, we we talk about responsible design. We talk about our responsibility, our obligation to make the right choices. We're not perfect at all, but you know, we we don't think we're sustainable for for a minute, and we, and we don't think that's enough. So you know, part of part of what I'm quite sort of happy to to be talking about is I think we need to be much more disruptive, a lot more questioning of things in general um, to really make the change. It's interesting that the car makers want us to save the planet by buying new cars. They clearly have not got the point. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I, I suppose it depends as well on um, how those cars are designed and, and what the thought processes and the, the long-term vision of, of, for that as well, you know, really considering not just cars, but every product's life cycle and truly making things that aren't just designed and, hey, Nick, thanks for buying the car, shake hands and you're off. You know, that's almost where the partnership should start, actually. You've bought the car, brilliant. Okay, Nick, well, we're going to follow that for 20 years, then we're going to take the car back, remake it, you know, all of those sorts of things. We we have an opportunity, and, and I don't think we should kid ourselves that people don't need new stuff because sometimes they, they do, but we don't need as much and we need to consider what happens to that stuff afterwards. So I suppose that that's part of what we're provoking within Radar. Let, let's just stop making more stuff. <laughs> let's think about what we're doing. Yeah. Well, we have got so much stuff already that uh, we could just use up what we have before making anything more. And that goes for cars, clothes, and, and many other things. Yeah. But how about fast fashion will they ever become sustainable and environmentally friendly and actually live up to all the claims they are currently making well, my, my perspective on on fast fashion in in general is that they they have a, or, or we i should say really have an enormous opportunity again to uh collaborate and and sort of co-create and and change things into a much more positive um way of manufacturing and and i suppose what has been encouraging again in the, the sort of like the last 10 12 years of business for me when i think about materials in particular when i started the company if you wanted to buy a recycled material it's normally 30 to 50 percent more expensive now you have parity in pricing so you actually are now in a position where they, there's sort of a, a, a no reason not to make that that right choice it's happening with organic cottons as well. And the reason I highlight all of this is that it scales of economy. That recycled um, uh, sort of um, parity around the pricing was driven mainly through sportswear brands, where a lot of um, them started to work with recycled materials. So the prices really came down. So back to fast fashion, if actually we look up the supply chain of how things are being manufactured and, and materials and, of course, the people making those products are really important because that's the other you know, really key key factor here. We have an opportunity to, to, to change those levers and do things in the right way. And again, it's scales of economy. But I, I, I think rather than, you know, being um, being ne you know negative on, on fast fashion, I think we need to look at it a different way of how can we all work better on this big problem we all need to solve. That's the way that, that I look at it. Maybe it was the wrong expression to use, just saying fast fashion. But I'm thinking sort of the high uh, 
high volume, low cost model, because there mm. has also been a marketing push towards buying less and buying better, or as the old version was, buy once, uh, buy yeah. better. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I hope if the last year's taught us anything as people is that we've all woken up to our immediate surroundings and and the sort of wider in, in environment. And again, kind of woken up to how much stuff we, we have in front of us already. And our wardrobes are, are bulging and I don't necessarily think we, we need more. So you've highlighted a few things. Categorically, we, we, we have to move to a point where you, people are, are, are kind of consuming less of, of everything, right? But we need to still find the right balance um, through all of this. I, I don't think it can be too draconian. And I really think part of this has to be design-led first. It's about providing people with a better solution rather than saying, don't do that or getting on a soapbox. It's actually being upfront to say, hey, we've thought this through and there's different ways of doing things. And that's why I still think, that's why I think it's still so important that it's about uh, collaboration, cross-brand. And, and again, just really even looking at things on a fiber basis, for example, you know, uh, cottons and polyesters and nylons and, you know, if hypothetically we could move to a point where actually it doesn't matter whether you've bought something at a fast fashion brand or you've bought it at, on a several row tailors, but it's still made of one material and you know you can put it into your recycling bank the same as you've done with your milk bottles or your other things, you know, that's where it starts to get actually a lot, lot cleverer. What we do as people at the moment is very um, short-termist. We do a lot of things where we're blending materials, polyesters and cottons together. And actually, there's very few ways to extrude them and take them apart and make them into anything new. So we, we really need to look up the, the um, supply chain and the, and the stream of what's happening up there to work out how we can improve things coming through. Slight tangent, but... As, as I understand it, we're in a bit of a fix now because there are limited amounts of cotton that can be made. And uh, a lot of the fossil fuel-based fabrics, like polyester, mm aren't really sort of uh, okay any longer, both because we're using up the fossil fuels and they shed microplastics and whatever. Yeah. Uh, so what is the future of fibres? Yeah, you're, you're spot on with, with the current realities. You know, within Rayburn, we're by no means perfect because we're still making items from, from recycled and, and um, essentially um, plastic-based materials for some of our pieces. But I think it's going to be a real combination. It has to be about remaking, as we've um, as we've been doing here. Um, and the the way that I sort of look at it is, you can do one of three things. Actually, we can make things that remade that are already existing and infinitely repairable. So if you can keep that thing in circulation, that's good. Anyway, make these things recycled and recyclable, um, as well as the, the sort of secondary um, side of things, and then making things that are natural and, and can go back to the earth. And you've highlighted the issues around cotton, and, you, and you're right at the moment. There's a lot of innovation happening, particularly around plants and, and wood-based fibres, which is really exciting. So tensils and lyocell and all of these things that, that are coming through. There's also things being made from seaweed and coconut and all of this other um, sort of innovation that's still relatively niche, but you can see the green shoots as well. Um, uh, of how things could, could change on, on scale, I think, down the line. But it's not easy. And you mentioned about the, the microplastics. It, it, it's massive. It's a massive issue. And um, 
I, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't sit here with all the answers at all. Oh, that's a bit scary. That's not even you. <laughs> that's the answers. <laughs> uh, but it is a strange world we live in now because there are so many people making massive claims uh, when it comes to sustainability and environmental factors. Mm. Many are being outed as greenwashing, and it's sort of a, sort of who who can you trust? And of course, it doesn't sort of help sitting there being a woke lord and telling people how to live their lives and how to do everything. But no, no I mean, you I, sort of have to show the way, I suppose. Yeah, it's I, I, well, yes, in simple terms, I'd like to think what we're doing through Rayburn is is providing um, provocations and different ways of thinking and working, um, and we'll continue to, to push our, ourselves to find, to find yet more different ways of working. But I think the advice for anyone you know looking into brands is do look and look properly. Because you're 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 right. You know the big statement on the front of the website or on the front of the store. You know you need to then actually really dig in and and, and make sense of that. And unfortunately, so often the big statement on the front of the store will be a very 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 small part of a very small collection within, and then ninety nine percent of uh, of the rest of the product isn't done in the same way. So you know there, there's um, conversation that, that that needs to be happening there. But I think. Again, I, I always try to look in the positives of, uh, with, with all of this, that even if we take that example and it's 1% at the moment, but then that same company moves to 5% and then 10% year on year in the, you know, in the way and, and improving the products that they're, that they're making and the way that they're making them, then that's progress. But if we all sit here and, and um, yeah, sort of panic a bit and, and only look at the negatives, then nothing's going to change. If we were to focus on the positive then, which of your products that you've made, be it as Rayburn or Timberland or whatever, are you most proud of in that respect? Well, I, th I think um, of, the, of the remade aspects, I think um, we can absolutely highlight things like our 1950s silk maps. But actually, I'm, I'm more proud that it's, it, it's become an inspiration the way that we've worked for so many younger designers. So we're cited a lot now through um, industry books, educational books, even uh, courses or modules um, looking into the way that, that we've worked. So I'm, I'm kind of, rather than citing just individual products, I think what we're looking at is we're kind of not designing clothes or products. We're, we're actually trying to design system change, you know, which is quite a, a, a crazy thing that I, I never set out to do for a minute. But that's what I'm proudest of, is that we've been part of a, 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 a change in the narrative, the zeitgeist, if you will, and, and an understanding of what, of what material and, and manufacturing can be. And I think that the really exciting thing for me is that I think the next 10 years we'll see a massive shift in the way that we're, um, we're sort of um, operating as an industry, and particularly around circularity, and the regenerative side of, of things, as I mentioned earlier with, with, with Timberland. So it's kind of two answers in one there. It, it's more the fact that, that the education and, and hopefully the, the foundation that we're, that we're continuing to build within Rayburn, but then those, those bigger things with Timberland, you know, both give me pride for different reasons. Mm. I meant to ask you about uh, silk maps. Mm. That's quite a strange thing to be using, isn't it? It is, um, yes, and it's something that we're we're very um, 
uh, uh, sort of very well known for, for want of a better word. It's um, a material that we started working with back in the spring of 2013. And I happened across an amazing uh, box, in fact, of original 1950s silk maps uh, whilst looking uh, at a sort of giant military surplus um, placed down in, in Kent, the southeast of England. And um, I found this cardboard box, must have been about 800 maps in it of all different areas and all beautifully, um, neatly folded and they'd never been used. And they used to print them for, for pilots. So rather than printing onto paper that, of course, could perish quite easily if it, if it got wet, they used to print onto, onto silk. And the quality of the weaves, the tightness of the denier means you can get amazing detail. And they fascinated me. Maps in general have always um, fascinated me. Of course, they, they bind us all together. And we started working with them, um, as I mentioned now, seven, eight years ago. And they've become a, a, a sort of um, a constant within the collection. We do everything from women's dresses, uh, T-shirts, um, even going all the way through to, to making scarves and, um, yeah, pocket squares. And I, they, they're just incredible. And every time I find them, and of course now they're increasingly rare, they always give me that same uh, sort of a, a amazing uh, buzz, I guess, that I had the first time I saw them. And yeah, definitely one of the coolest things we do. These would have been Cold War ones uh, of uh, Germany or something then. Well, actually, yeah. Um, thanks for mentioning that. We we tend to have them of um, of Scandinavia and Western Russia. Um, so yeah, a lot going up through through Norway, which of course you you know very well. Um, and then we do have a lot actually of Central Asia as well, and, and even areas like Afghanistan and, and things like Iraq. But what, what's fascinating is that because they're from the 1950s, so many of the places have actually been renamed or, you know, they're, they're just real pieces of history. And it's fascinating yeah. when we have people coming into our, our um, lab space here in, in London. So often you can talk to someone through the story, you show them the original map, you then show them what you've made it into, and they still don't believe that it's the real map, you know, from 70 years ago. It's, oh, but you've reprinted it, right? No, 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 yeah. this is the real thing. And what's really nice is often we have customers, uh, because of the nature of what we do, they might come on, come in and, and they have their honeymoon in Stockholm or they, they want to um, remember something. So we go out and find the map and then we're able to actually make that into a garment, into a cushion, into... Um, yeah, everything through to notebooks, in fact, we've, we've done for customers. Mm, I have seen a few, and the quality is absolutely remarkable. And, of course, they're so clean and unused that mm. it is hard to believe that they are 70-odd years ago um, since they were made. I did want to ask you a bit about your latest, um, your latest assignment. Yeah, sure. I know you've been... Uh, I almost said roped in, but I mean uh, hired or approached to, um, can we say restart a couple of the classic Massimo Osti brands? Yeah, I think re reinvigorate is certainly the, the the way that we're looking at things. Yeah, it's a it's a real honour, Nick. So obviously Massimo Osti is, is um, someone that I think most designers um, have kind of grown up with and, and been influenced by in, in different ways. And so those projects and the, and the opportunity, it, it's an amazing one. We're actually then working on, on left hand and, and ST95. Left hand, of course, was 
was very famous through the through the nineties. SC ninety five less so, but it was um, it was younger, a bit more sporty, a bit more technical, and it's something that that really appealed to me because of the work that we do within Rayburn and the respect that I obviously have for, for those uh, brands and, and where they were. Um, and I know as well that now with the work that, that we do within Rayburn to, to look at those brands through a more responsible lens, which of course wasn't really a focus back in back in the 90s, that's a really exciting um, uh, sort of duality to, to have that innovation and, and then the responsible design coming coming together. So it's early doors, and unfortunately, I can't give away too much on on the podcast. But um, yeah, stay tuned because they'll be coming through later on in the year. Because it's what sixteen years since uh, Osti himself passed away. Um, I don't know when these brands were last active, but uh, some of his other brands have been kept going all along. Yeah, of course. Um, yes, so uh, these ones were wrapped up kind of late late nineties, but then of course you've still got CP and Stone Island and the legacy that that obviously Massimo um, obviously left. Mm. So I guess the people now reactivating them are sort of hoping that the guys that liked them back in the late nineties are still around, or or will they be relevant for new younger people I think like that, Stone Island? Exactly. Suddenly... I think I think that's that's really the key that actually rather than it being uh, just hoping to appeal to, to the same guys and girls that bought it back then, there's a whole new generation. And certainly through through Rayburn, we've found that fastidious uh, guy and girl that, that's so interested in the provenance of the materials, the way that we work. Um, I, I see now a lot of alignment, of course, with, with that same customer potentially looking back on, on left hand and, and ST as well. So we're really excited about it. Mm -hmm. Of course, what everyone wonders about now is, when does Rayburn sleep? Uh -huh. um, no, all, all, all good. No, I've got got a fairly fairly good balance and through all of this. Um, and all, in all seriousness, it's about having an amazing team as well. Because I don't, for a minute, uh, take all of this on on my shoulders. And um, yeah, I've been really grateful to to have grown that team now over the last 10, 10 or so years, and and very. Um, skilled but then very um i just think very uh naturally kind of curious um people in themselves as well so you, you um yeah i've been very grateful for that now i did want uh to give you the opportunity to tell me about uh your lab tours because i believe you have a fairly transparent and open lab where people can come visit you yeah thanks um yes yeah, so uh, sort of, um, if we take lockdown to, to one side, because obviously at the moment we're we're certainly not doing lab tours, but um, during normal opening hours, we're actually open at the, the whole space is open to the public four days a week, so Thursday through to through to Sunday, where folks can actually come in and see things being made. We're part retail. The space here is about two and a half thousand square feet, and about half of that then is is. Um, as I mentioned, kind of retail and, and things, but then we also do bi-weekly uh, tours of the space where then you go through the archive, you understand a lot more about the, the making process, see the, the full atelier and really um, get a bit more of a tour of the seasonal collections and then, then the previous work that we've done and um, sometimes a little sneak peek as well of, of future projects and things upcoming. And what's been so inspiring is that we've found... Um, that attendees really have been very, very broad, and people have come from all over the world. You know, maybe they're visiting London, 
but we've had uh, folks come from Chile, we've had Australia, we've had, um, of course, all throughout Asia, that when they're here in, in London, they've come to the, to the space and, and learned all about Rayburn. And yeah, we've again, we've found that we've learned a lot ourselves from it. It's a really um, open dialogue. We get some really good questions that sometimes we haven't considered. And yeah, you, you sort of um, sometimes uh, kind of push each other a, a little bit as well through through those learnings. It must feel incredibly validating to have people travel that far and actually come and come and see. Well, I won't, I won't kid myself that they've just come, but we have had people, yeah, that that um, when they've come to London, they've said this was the first thing I wanted to do. So yeah, and actually, it started as a um, quite a, an interesting experiment where we were approached originally by Airbnb because Airbnb doing experiences, and the whole thing is that oh, Nick, you've you've booked to come to London. Here's ten different things you could do while you were there, and we were we were one of the things that that you could you could go and see a fashion studio, and uh, we're really proud that we're still the highest kind of rated um, tour on on Airbnb, and then we those became kind of quite popular, and then we started also doing our own independently and things. But again, it's just sometimes you just need to start something and see how it goes right and one thing leads to another and and it evolves and it kind of keeps things fresh which is good yeah, i mean it's pretty good because there's no shortage of things to do in london so the fact that so many people want to come yeah. and see you brilliant. yeah and it, it it's sort of the opposite if you are of the normal fashion model i guess it, it tends to be quite smoke and mirrors in our part of the industry you know a lot of a lot of secrets um Whereas we actually prefer to yeah be be completely transparent and and yeah let people know how we work and uh, yeah and, and and what we're doing basically. And it sounds like you're also offering an opportunity for people to learn, to question, to see stuff, and it's not just a case of sort of roping people in for the hard sell. Oh no, quite the opposite. We're, if anything, we're we're terrible at the hard sell. <laughs> quite yeah, quite the opposite. Uh, I don't know if there's anything you wanted to mention sort of in closing before we talk about the lads. The lads. No, I just, um, I hope, uh, obviously, the, the, the talk's been, been interesting. I'd, I'd ask people if they have a minute to have a look on our website and things as well. We've done a lot of work to to try and um, communicate as clearly as we can what, what we do as a, as a company. Um, and then, of course, if you're here in London, please do come and visit us. But we also have Rayburn products in, in stores around the world as well. So, yeah, hopefully you'll you'll learn more and more about the world of Rayburn as we continue to grow. And if nothing else, you can make a shark or a, a Rayburn monkey. Anywhere in the world uh, right now, yeah. So, about the lads. Aha, so this is something a little bit different. Um, so it would be about this time last year, so February 2020, that I was doing some research on on what I could do as an individual myself to reduce my impact. You know, here in London, I cycle when I when I come into the studio. I'm, I'd like to think I'm kind of doing all the right things, but I then was starting to look particularly at home, what I could do maybe to make some improvements. And I learned that... Uh, about 60 or even up to 70% of your domestic waste, so things that go in your, your rubbish bin in the kitchen, even into the recycling bin, they can actually go into a composter at home, so a wormery or a worm farm. Um, and I live on the 12th floor of a brutalist tower block in, in South London, 
So it wasn't a case of oh, I'll put a put a compost in the garden. I uh, instead <laughs> invested in a um, a small kind of wormery uh, for my home. It lives out on the balcony, and then it comes in for for sort of certain um, moments when I'm doing live live broadcasts and things with with the lads. But long story short, it's been amazing because uh, you learn all about the ecosystem through the wormery. And actually, as I mentioned earlier, so much of what you you might be putting in your waste, so everything from cardboard through to uh, chopped flowers or maybe um, apple cores, etc., can all then be actually put into this wormery. And what's amazing is that um, that kind of waste, if you will, is then processed by the worms. You get beautiful soil, and then you get worm tea, which goes into the bottom, almost like a, a sump into the worm farm, which you can pour out and put onto your plants. And it's basically like rocket fuel for the plants. Um, and I, I kind of I, I started doing a few broadcasts on Instagram uh, called Worm Chat, uh, which has had quite a sort of big big reaction, I guess. And it's been encouraging. A lot of people have bought their own wormeries, so I feel a, a certain responsibility. But it's a bit of fun. You, you do get good uh, viewing figures uh, for <laughs> Worm Chat. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I mean, you might think you're famous for uh, recycling and upcycling, but you're the worm guy. <laughs> uh, well, it, it's fascinating because now, of course, no one asks, oh, you know, um, you know, how's, how's your family or anything like that? The first question I'll be asked is, how are the worms? You know, not how, how's the business, how's your family? None of that. How are the worms? So, yeah. <laughs> this has been wonderful. And uh, thank you for, for honouring me as my guest. Likewise. Thank you. Uh, I'd love to come and see the studio when I next have a chance to visit London. Oh, great. Yeah, look, look forward to um, to welcoming you, Nick. And, of course, the same for, for anyone listening in, just to say thanks for, of course, uh, their time and your time. And, yeah, exciting. Nice to have got this done after all these, all these months. Thank you. Well, bye-bye, Chris. Bye-bye. And that was all for this week. Thanks a lot to uh, Christopher Rayburn for being a great guest. And uh, if you'd like to catch more of uh, Christopher's um, various enterprises, I'll put some links in the episode notes. I'm Nick Johannesson, host of uh, Gomology. And if you'd like to get in touch, send an email to gomology at wildristdad.com. If you enjoyed this, you might enjoy the blog at wildristdad.com. You might even enjoy following me on Instagram as WellDressedDad. You can also follow the podcast on Instagram to get an update when there's a new episode out as Gomology um, Podcast. If you could take the time to leave a rating or even review on Apple Podcast, it would be great. Or even just tell a few friends about this podcast. It's pretty hard to get out there and become known in the podcast world. So anything helps and I really appreciate it. So... Thanks a lot for now. Catch you next week and uh, bye-bye.